turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42, and while you find your place there, I want to say He created more than just the tree. Amen. He put the metal that they would mine out, melt down, but Charlie, and make into the nails. He put it in the earth, didn't he? And He allowed the men that would hold the hammers to be born, and He allowed the thorns that would be placed on His head to grow. And he put the men in power that would have to make the decisions that have to be made. And Pilate looked at him and said to him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and I have power to release me? And Jesus looked at him and said this, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. I'm saying this, that he did all of it. Amen. Every bit of it he did it. He allowed it and he permitted it. No man took him against his own will. He, no man could take his life from him. He's God. He's God in the flesh. No man could take his life from him. But he laid it down that he might take it up again. It doesn't say that uh, man hated Jesus so much that they took him. It says that God loved the world so much that he gave him. Amen. He gave his only begotten son. Nobody could have took him. Man, I'm glad he gave him, aren't you? Amen. Well, let's preach a little bit about it this morning. Genesis chapter number 42, and I'd like to begin reading verse number 1 of this chapter, and we'll not read the entirety, but we'll read most of it uh, this morning. And I want us to try to train in on a thought that God may let us spend a little time on the next couple weeks. Genesis chapter 42, verse number 1, the Bible says, Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief shall befall him. The sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him, knew not him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, and said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Shows you how wrong you can be sometimes. They said one is not, but that one was sitting right in front of them. Amen. Joseph said unto them, That is it that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. Hereby ye shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely ye are spies. And he put them all together into ward three days. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses. But bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, We are very guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. 
Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And he turned himself about from them, and wept, and returned to them again, and communed with them, and took from them Simeon, and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn, and to restore every man's money into his sack, and to give them provision for the way. Thus did he unto them. And they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he he espied his money. For behold, it was in the sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them. They were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? They came unto Jacob their father unto the land of Canaan and told him all that befell unto them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. And we said unto him, We are true men, we are no spies. We be twelve brethren, sons of our father. One is not, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country, said unto us, Hereby shall I know that ye are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me. And take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother unto me. Then shall I know that ye are no spies, but that ye are true men. So will I deliver you your brother, and ye shall traffic in the land. And it came to pass as they emptied their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to be in this place, this haven, Lord, where we might meet with your people where we might preach Your Word, where we might sing about You and rejoice together and pray together. Lord, most of all, the most precious thing is that we meet with You here. Father, that You would speak to our hearts, that You through Your Word and the preaching of it would deal with our lives and speak directly to us. I pray we'd not take it for granted, but that we'd bow our hearts and and bow our, our minds before You, Lord, and open ourselves unto You and allow You to do in us that which would bring you the most glory. You know the heart's condition of each and every person here. Lord, I, if I tried to guess it, I'd, I'd fail. If I tried to guess my own, really, I, I couldn't say it as truly as you could. But Lord, you know all things. Lord, we trust you to do the work that is most needed in our lives. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice back with me verse number 27. The Bible says, and as one of them, the Bible doesn't tell us which brother it was, just says one of them, When he opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money. For behold, it was in his sack's mouth. Now there are several interesting features about this passage of Scripture, this verse, the story as a whole, but this verse in particular. And the number one being what he found. When he opened up that bag of corn, he looked and he found the bundle of money sitting right there on the top. And it Shocked him to death. He had already been accused of being a spy in the land of Egypt. And now he knew for sure that he would be considered a thief as well. He thought that that money sent in there meant that the life of Simeon was forfeit. And he begins to gather his brethren around and show them and and tell them what has happened. They don't know uh, how this has occurred. They had paid for the corn that they had took. And the last time they saw the money, it was being taken by the man that would have uh, handled the transaction. But now here in this moment, an amazing, a baffling, a miraculous thing has happened and this money is sitting there waiting on them. But the thing that interests me most of this passage of Scripture is the location in which this happened. 
I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are only four occasions in the Word of God when an inn is spoken about. It's interesting to me that it was not while they were still in Egypt. It was not while they were en route traveling between Egypt and the inn, nor was it when they were on their way from the inn to the land of Canaan, nor even was it when they got home. It appears they checked the other bags when they got home. The Bible says that all of this transpired at an inn. You and I know what an inn is. We'd call it a hotel, amen, or a motel. I've never been able to figure out the difference. That probably means I can't afford one or the other of them, but... Uh, what it is, is it, it is a temporary lodging. It is a dwelling place for a person when they're on a journey, when they're on a sojourn, to be able to stop and be able to rest and find the things that they need. And it's interesting that in 66 books of the Bible, in all of the record of human history that the Holy Ghost gave us, there are only four times that this phenomenon is mentioned to us. One is in our text in front of us. Another is over in Exodus chapter 4. When the Bible tells us that the Lord caught Moses at the end and was going to kill him because he hadn't circumcised one of his sons and he was getting ready to go in Egypt. Another, of course, you know very well, and that's in Luke chapter number 2, when the uh, Savior of the world is about to be born and he comes to the end, his parents do, and the Bible tells us there was no room for them at the end. And then there's a third time whenever an end is mentioned, and that's in Luke chapter number 10, in the parable that our Lord told of the Good Samaritan when He takes this wounded and broken traveler and brings him to the end that he might be healed and recovered. And it's interesting that God would only give us those occasions. I began to study and pray about and think about what this could mean to us. I don't believe God puts anything in His Word by accident. I don't believe He leaves anything out by accident. So the things there must be there for a reason. I began to think about what an inn represents. And you know, it sort of reminds me of something. Let me say it this way. When I think of the inn and the function that it has in the Word of God, it sort of reminds me of the life that we live right now and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Well, let me give you a few examples. One, when I think of an inn, I note first off, and it's hard to not think about this, that an inn is a temporal location. Now, there are some unfortunate souls that because of circumstances, they've had to live in a hotel for a short time. Maybe they've built in a house. Maybe they didn't have anywhere else to go. But by and large, an inn is not designed for you to live there all the time. If they were, they'd make them walls thicker. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, you just can't be comfortable in an inn. And you're not really meant to be ultimately comfortable there because it's just a temporal place. You see, we could say it this way. You're not living there. You're just passing through. Can I say that the way that we know Christ right now, we know Him in a temporary way. Now that's not to suggest that the salvation we enjoy in Jesus Christ is in any way temporary, but it is to say that the relationship we have with Him now, somebody ought to say amen right here, it ain't always going to be like it is right now. I'm glad to know that it ain't going to always be like it is right now. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, when I was a child, I spake as a child and I understood as a child. I thought as a child, he said, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I think there's a lot of things that he's talking about there. But he then goes on in verse 12 to say this, For now we see through a glass darkly. But then, how are we going to know him then? The Bible says, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. I'm happy to report to you, listen, it gets better from here. 
This isn't how it's going to be. Hey, listen, I'm thankful for the prayer closet, but I'm thankful for the day when the prayer closet gets to be retired. I'm thankful that His grace is sufficient for us for every trial and for every mile, but I'm looking forward to the day when that grace won't be needed to sojourn through this life. You see, the way we're living and how we interact with the Lord right now is in a temporal way. Right now, we inter, uh, interact with Him through prayer and through the Word of God. But thank God, one day we'll be face to face with Him. So it reminds me of it because it's a temporal location. Then number two, it reminds me of this Christian life because it is a hopeful location. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, listen, if you've ever taken any kind of long trip, where you've got to stay overnight, you know that the longest miles on the road are the last 15 or 20 before you hit that hotel. Uh, in fact, uh, a hotel is a place where you go and you have hope. Now we got Google and everything else. There was a time the way you traveled, you just got on the road and you went and you hoped one was going to be along your way. But a weary traveler would look forward with hope to the inn where he could find some help. Why was that? Well, for a couple reasons. One, an inn was a place of refuge. Uh, Human travel throughout much of human history was severely limited. And for this simple reason, because they had to get somewhere where they could find refuge from the elements and the dangers of the road. If it took you longer to get there than you could walk in a day, chances are you weren't going to travel there because you had to get somewhere where bandits could not fall upon you, where weather could not afflict you. And the inn was considered a place of refuge. If a traveler was, was traveling on a journey and he saw the inn, his heart sang with with hope because he knew finally here is a safe haven where I can be protected from those that would afflict me. You know, and in that way, it sort of reminds me of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. How many of you know this? That it is a refuge, it is a strong power that we run into and are saved. In fact, listen, if you're living this life without Jesus Christ, you don't know what refuge is. You don't know what peace is. You don't know what hope and happiness is. You'll only find it in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9 says this about the Lord Jesus. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. I got news for you. The day I got born again was the day I entered into the refuge. I don't have to worry about the enemy that would afflict me. I don't have to worry about the elements that would assault me. I don't have to worry about the dangers that would befall me because He's watching over me. I am saved in Him. It's a place of refuge. Number two, it reminds me because it's a place of rest. Uh, The whole reason you go is so that you can have some place to rest and recuperate and be able to get your energies back. And you know, that's exactly what the Bible says about our relationship with Jesus. The Hebrews writer said, there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. Uh, Jesus said, those that were following Him, come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, He said. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest Unto your soul. Now you know what that means, don't you? When a person gets there, when they're, when they're at the hotel, they ain't traveling. When they're traveling, they ain't at the hotel. When they're at the hotel, they're not moving. They're sitting in one place and they are resting. You know, that's how it is in our relationship with Christ. Uh, the Hebrews writer says that if a man rests, he ceases from his own labors. When you and I got born again, you know what, you know how we got born again? We learned that we couldn't get there on our own self, on our own righteousness, on our own ability, and we learned to rest in Jesus Christ. We learned, listen, resting doesn't necessarily mean idleness in the Christian life, but it does mean resting on His finished work. So it's a place of rest. And then it's a place of resources. Again, one of the reasons people would go to an inn at this time 
in history is because if your journey took more food than you could carry, then you had to find a place to get food. Uh, we have this idea that uh, before we concreted everything, it was just the Garden of Eden. And you could walk through and pick pears and apples and everything off the trees. But the reality is this, that much of the land throughout human history has always, unless it's been tended, been barren. And when a person was traveling, if they couldn't get to an end, they had no means of resources. That's one of the things that changed in human history with the development of politics and of nation states and things like that was when mankind began to be able to preserve food because prior to that, you could only have as big a kingdom as your belly would let you have. You couldn't ride any further than what you could carry with you. Now we can just stop in at the pilot, amen, get one of them hot dogs been sitting on the roller for two weeks. But back then you could not do that. But an end provided an ability to do that. It gave you the resources that you needed for the journey. Man, that reminds me of Jesus Christ. I could quote a hundred verses here or read a hundred verses at least, but Philippians 4.19 will do. You know it and I know it. My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So what I'm saying is this, that the way that a traveler would be traveling and he would see the end in the distance and his heart would leap because he knew he had found a place of refuge and a place of rest and a place of resource. So too, the weary lost individual, when he sees what Jesus Christ will do for him, he can have hope that he can find there all that he needs for the journey of this life. So listen, it, it, it was it was a temporal location. It was a hopeful location, but it reminds me of the Christian life because it was an essential location. If you wanted to get from point A to point B, there had to be an end for you to get there. Man, that reminds me of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you want to make the long journey, and there's no longer journey between a, a man's cradle and between the throne of God. If you want to make the journey uh, from in this life, if you want to get to God, there's only one way you can get to God. And that's through Jesus Christ. You'll not make it without an end. And hey, listen, you'll not make it without Him. He is the only hope. He is the only help. So these four occasions in the Bible when an end is mentioned, what I want you to be thinking about is the life we have, the Christian life, the Christian experience. And we find that as four different groups of people came to the end, they found four different things. Now you say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you an example. When Moses got to the end, you know what he found? He found that the perfect Lord demands a pure life. He found that he couldn't just live any old way that he wanted and expect God to be okay with it. God had standards and God had things that He expected out of Him. Uh, we find in Luke chapter 2 when God got to the end, it wasn't man traveling to the end, it was God that was traveling to the end. And what did He find? When He got there, He found that the accommodations were already occupied. Can I say this? It's a sad truth, but in many Christian lives, uh, the, the, the accommodations have already been occupied. That We've got no room for God because we've let Him be crowded out by other things. But I'm glad to report to you, listen, when the wounded and weary traveler was carried to the end in Luke chapter 2, you know what he found? He found that healing could happen. He found that there was a place where he could be restored and he could be made whole. In other words, when I read this, I, I find there is an end of reckoning where Moses goes. I find there is a, 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 an end of, uh, of reception where God goes, but he's not received sadly. I find there is an end of restoration where the traveler in Luke chapter 10 goes, where he can be healed and find the help that he needs. But that's not the one we're preaching about this morning. We're reading about Jacob's sons. And when they arrive at the end, I wonder, Brother Ken, what they find. Well, when I read this passage, there's really only one way I can say it. 
when they get to the end, they open that sack of corn and they bought this and they paid for it and their money is long gone. But you know what they find? They get to the end and you know what they find? They find that the price has already been paid. Can I tell you this morning, the price has already been paid for the Christian life. It's not something we have to pay. We can try to give God our money and He ain't interested in it. You know what He does? We try to we try to earn it with our good works and He just gives them right back to us. We try to earn it with our righteousness He gives it right back. We try to earn it with our money or our baptism or our church membership. Any of those things, God says, I'm sorry, I don't accept that currency. You go ahead and take it back. I don't need it. The price has already been paid. So how does this remind us of what Jesus did for us? Well, I think in three ways. Let me mention them to you and we'll be done this morning. First, I want you to think with me about the importance of the money. Now, money is an important thing. Uh, and if somebody says it's not, it's because they want some from you. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, or they're the government and they can print it. Amen, one of the two. Uh, it's funny, I don't understand why if they can print money, they want our taxes. But I'm simple like that. I don't. There's a lot that don't make sense to me in this world. But money is an important thing. And I would say this, as they are traveling on, this is not a pleasure trip. This is not a vacation. This is not a sightseeing tour. This is a trip to the global grocery store for them. They're going to a place and their sole purpose is not to take in the nightlife of Egypt. Their purpose is not to behold the grandeur of Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, not Pharaoh. I don't know. Where is Pharaoh? Maybe she was there. But but that, that's not the purpose of it. Uh, their purpose is not to go and study in the libraries of Alexander. They have one purpose in going to Egypt. They want to buy food. And I'd say this, of all the things that they carried, the most important thing was the money they had on them. What did that money represent? Well, it represented a few things to me. One, it was the price of their survival. Look what it says in verse number 2 of our text. Uh, Jacob looks at his sons and he said unto them, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. This money was the price of their survival. It was literally the difference between life and death for them. Can I tell you this morning that who Jesus is and how you know Him, what your relationship with, not in the life to come, but in this life, what your relationship with Him is, is the difference between life and death. If you uh, can't make yourself square and righteous with God and we're going to talk about, but I think you already know that no man can do so in his own ability or in his own strength. But if a man can't make himself whole before God, it doesn't matter what else he accomplishes. He may have a beautiful family. He may have a big bank account. He may have the approval and praise of man. But none of that matters. You see, at the end of the day, the thing that determines whether you live or whether you die is whether that price has been paid. It was to them the price of their survival. And you know, that reminds me that's what Jesus did for me when He died for me. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. The only reason you and I get to go free, the only reason we get to live is because Jesus paid the price of our sin debt. So it was, it was important because it was the price of their survival. Number two, it was important because it was the price of their satisfaction. Verse number 5, the Holy Ghost says that the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land. Later on, as the boys are discussing it, when they go back in chapter 43, one of them, I believe Reuben, looks at his father and says, we've got to go because we've got to buy food for our families. They said this, we got little children, little boys and little girls, sons and daughters that are sitting starving at home. 
They're not satisfied. They go and they open the pantry door, but there's nothing there. Uh, they go and, and tug at their mama's uh, skirt him, but there's nothing she can do for him. She's just got to weep and wring her hands. We're dying and there's no satisfaction in our homes. Can I tell you something? You'll never have a satisfied life unless that price is paid for you. Whatever this world can offer, and this world may boast of offering much, but at the end of the day, it is all but hollow. It is all but passing. It is all but moving along. It is nothing meaningful. It is nothing substantial. It is nothing that truly satisfies. We're seeing in the midst of the conflict and, and, and in the midst of the turmoil in our society today just how thin the contentment of our society and civilization is as even the most basic things have been uh, ripped away from us, we're finding out what it takes to keep a man whole and to give him peace of mind. Can I tell you something? I'm not pleased with what I see going on in this world. And there is much that I question. And there is much that I criticize. And there's much that I think ought to be different. But can I say this? Whatever griping I may do, whatever criticism I may have, whatever complaining I may do, don't you think for one moment I'm dissatisfied with Jesus Christ? I don't know what this future holds. I don't know what this world will look at. I know how things look after the Lord comes, but I don't know quite what they look like right before He comes. I've got an idea and I can see some things in Scripture. I don't know how bad it will get, but I will tell you this. In Jesus Christ, you'll find a satisfaction that will never leave you. Only by addicting yourself to the appetites of the world will you ever be unsatisfied with Jesus. But it won't be because He can't satisfy you. He's able. He told the woman at the well, whosoever drinketh of this water. And He's talking about temporal water. You know, that's all that the world has to offer. That's the best that it has to offer uh, is water. My wife gets on me all the time about, about drinking water. And I tell her, my body's 75% water. I, I, I'm close to being waterlogged. Amen? And she'll say, you need to drink water. And I'll say, I did. I drank sweet tea. And she'll say, that ain't water. I'll say, it's made with water. How much of it is water? It's just about whole water. There's just a little bit of tea and a little bit of sugar. But really, what it is, is just water. That's all it is. At the end of the day, if the human body doesn't have some kind of uh, liquid, some kind of nourishment, some kind of, of satisfaction, it'll die. And by the way, you'll die of thirst a lot quicker than you'll die of hunger. You'll die of thirst a lot quicker than you'll die of hunger. See, the lost man, uh, he dies immediately and quickly and instantly in his sins and his perishing is, is, is abrupt and it is evident because you die quicker. But those that are saved and born again but neglect the bread of life, they spiritually wither on the vine. And it takes a little longer, but it'll happen just the same. I'm saying this, Jesus is the only one that does satisfy He's the only one that does that. He said, if you drink of this water, this is all this world has to offer you. It is the best life. Water was life to them. It's the best life that this world can give you shall thirst again. But then he said this, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Isn't God good? Can I just, this isn't my message, but can I just say this? God don't want to keep you tethered to the well. He wants to put the well inside you. In other words, most false gods, the construct of their religion is to keep you tethered to them in devotion and in fear and in terror. That's not the way God did things. He said, I'm not going to keep you tethered to this well. I'm going to put the well inside you. In so much that we got a peace that we carry with us everywhere we go. That's the kind of God that we have. I would say this, that this price, it was the price of their, their, their family was never going to be satisfied if this price was not paid. And listen, you'll never be satisfied. Your family will never be satisfied. Your life will never be satisfied without Jesus Christ. But then I'd say this, it was the price of their safety. It allowed them safe access to Joseph. 
Now you and I both know and understand that Joseph is, has got a, a, a larger plan to bring them to a place of repentance and contrition and restoration. And there's much taking place here that, that really it doesn't, it ain't even really pointing to Joseph. It was Joseph that did it, but it ain't even really pointing to Joseph. It's pointing to what Jesus is doing in the nation of Israel. But I do notice this, that they could have never got in his presence if they hadn't had this money in the first place. It showed that they were serious men and it showed that they had business with the king. Can I tell you something? Listen, a man can never get into the presence of God without that price first being paid. Somebody's got to pay it. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access by confident, with confidence by the faith of him. You know why they could go in and see Joseph's face? Because they had money in their pocket. You know why you and I can go in and see Jesus face to face? Not because of the money that we have, but because of the price that He has paid for us. Hebrews chapter 4 says this in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest uh, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You say, gee, uh, look, preacher, when did that happen? That happened when He came and became man and, and bore our sin and became our sin and died on the cross of Calvary and paid our sin debt. And then he says this, let us therefore, because of all that, because the price has been paid, because he's been through this, because he's suffered in our stead, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time. And I'm saying this, this money was important. I mean, it was the most important thing, Brother Ken, that they had. Anything else, you say, preacher, they needed food. If they had lost their food, they could have bought it with the money. Preacher, they, they, they needed water. If they had poured out their water, they could have bought more with the money that they had. You see, their life depended on this. And you know, at the end of the day, whatever you and I think that we might need in life, at the end of the day, it's not what we need. If we get Jesus, we'll have everything we need. They said, we've got the money, so we've got everything we need. Can I tell you, if we've got Jesus and what He did for us, we have everything that we need. So I see the importance of this money, but then I see the imparting of this money. Now this is interesting because Joseph, man, he's sneaky. Joseph would have done good around Christmas time. He knew how to keep a secret. He knew how to give a gift and nobody know he would give it. And that's how he did this. He imparted it in an unusual way. The Bible tells us uh, that whenever he gave it, he commanded uh, to fill their sacks with corn, verse 25, and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. And thus did he unto them. He didn't walk out to them and say, boys, your money's no good here. Just take the corn. I'm happy for you to have it. Now, he could have said it that way. Listen carefully. He could have made it uh, compulsory, mandatory, and easy. But instead, he did it in a concealed way that they had to learn and discover through searching through the sack. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, it reminds me of this. People ask the question all the time. Well, you know, why is it if God loves everybody, why don't He make everybody be saved? Because, listen, He doesn't just want their hands to be bound. He wants their heart to be bound to Him. He could force men to be saved, but He will not trespass upon their free will and their choice. I don't believe God forces Himself upon anyone, whether they call themselves elect or select or whatever else. He gives every man the choice whether or not to receive Him. And He gives every man, I said He gives every man the choice whether or not to receive Him. So when He gave this money, we notice a few things. Notice with me, number one, it was given preemptively. They didn't come and they didn't say, now, Joseph, we can't pay this price. We need you to pay it for us. Now, later on, listen carefully, they accepted the money. But when it was given, 
It was given without them ever asking. You know, that reminds me of how Jesus paid the price of our sin debt. I don't know about you, but I didn't get a call sometime before the crucifixion. Him saying, now Toby, I just want to let you know you ain't even born yet. Through my miraculous means, I'm going to ask you if you want me dying in your place or not. No, he just went ahead and died for me. He died for the men that hate him. He died for the men that loathe him. He died for any and everyone. And he died preemptively. Listen, it, it, we love him. Why? Because he first, he first, he first loved us. You say, preacher, I, you know, maybe if I'm real good, God will love me. No, you ain't even got to be real good for God to love you. He loves you already. Hey, listen, when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for He didn't wait for men to ask for Him to pay the price. He went ahead and paid the price anyway. So I see He paid for it. He gave this preemptively. Number two, I noticed that it was given unconditionally. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, Joseph, Joseph gave the money and he had no clue if they'd ever return or not. Now, I'm going to say here in a minute, he did this because it was part of a larger plan. But he didn't give it and say, put a little note in it that said, you know, don't open till you get home, or you better come back, or you better this, or you better that. He just said, listen, just put it in the sack. It's theirs. I've paid the price. I don't know if they'll ever receive it. I don't know if they'll ever come back. I don't know if they'll ever thank me for it. I don't know if it'll do any good in their life. But I'm willing to pay the price. And now it is their choice what they will do with it. You know, that's how Jesus died for us. The Bible doesn't say He tasted death for the elect. The Bible doesn't say He tasted death for those that would receive Him. The Bible doesn't say He tasted death for those that would be good Christians. The Bible doesn't say He tasted death for those that would serve Him and for those that would love Him. The Bible says He tasted death for every man. He died unconditional. The uh, Calvinists talk about un- unconditional election. I want to talk about unconditional uh, grace and salvation, propitiation. I'm not saying everybody's going to be saved, but I'm saying any and everybody could be if they come to Him. Because when He died on the cross, He didn't die for just a handful. He died for everybody. Say, so, preacher, what if they didn't return? It don't matter. He died. He paid the price. Uh, we could have a big conversation about why that is because it had a lot more to do with Him satisfying the wrath of God uh, than it even did Him saving the wretched sinner. But suffice it to say, when He died on the cross, He died for everybody. He gave it unconditionally. I notice He gave it preemptively uh, before they even asked. He gave it unconditionally. Uh, he didn't only give to those uh, that would return, but then I notice He gave sacrificially. You know, Joseph gave out of the reserves that he himself had provided. If you read back through the history of Joseph, you know how this unfolded. You know that God gave to Pharaoh a dream that had to do with seven skinny cows and seven fat cows. And I'll refrain from making a joke there. Somebody say amen. But but there's seven skinny cows and seven fat cows. And, and, and God showed to Joseph that what this dream meant was that uh, that Egypt was going to have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And that he needed to lay up in store for those seven years. He needed to put some back and save some because those those lean years were coming. You know, God gives us the best advice. God gives us the best advice. Uh, you, you know, God talked about it before Dave Ramsey ever did. Dave Ramsey was just a, a, a twinkle in his uh, parents' eyes. God had already said, "Hey, listen, lean times are going to come." So, so in, in the, in, in the, in the abundant times, you better put back because sooner or later the lean times are going to come. So God had told Joseph this. And Pharaoh had appointed Joseph to be the man that gathered all this in. He built great storehouses and he, he took inventory and he created a system. In fact, there would have been no corn in the land if Joseph hadn't done what he did. All the corn in the land belonged, we could maybe say to Joseph. 
when he gave this money back, here's what he was given. He wasn't given money, he was given corn. They already had the money, but he was given the corn. Where did the corn come from? It came out of his reserves. He was the one that paid the price so that they could go free and have this money. You know, that reminds me of Jesus. That's exactly what He did for you and I. He paid for our sin debt out of His righteousness. He didn't pay for it out of another man's righteousness. He didn't pay for it through some Ponzi scheme or shell game. He took the punishment. He took the pain. He took the wrath. He took the chastening. He took the punishment of God on Himself. The Bible says that though He was rich, yet became He poor, that we might be made rich through Him. And that ain't talking about your bank account, friend. That's talking about your righteousness. We were made, He was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It was the great exchange. He reached down into the, into the stores of the corn of His grace and brought up enough to satisfy the wrath of God. So I see it was given sacrificially. And then I notice this, it was given providentially. It was part of Joseph's larger plan to bring them to a place of repentance and restoration. Now, Joseph did not know who was going to take this, uh, whether or not they were going to return or not. He had no idea. We know that God does, of course, know because God knows all things. But God, uh, just as Joseph gave it, not knowing, with no guarantee they would return, Christ died for those, even those that He knows will reject Him. But you know, in His dying for us, He has done so as part of a larger plan to bring us, not just to forgive us of our sins, but to bring us to a place of repentance and restoration and relationship with Him. You know what the Bible word for that is? Reconciliation. That's what Joseph was trying to do. He was trying to reconcile his brethren unto himself. He hadn't done his brethren wrong. They had done him wrong. But he in his grace and mercy took the the brunt of it and did what needed to be done and, and constructed a system and a plan and a process whereby they could be brought back to a place of fellowship with Him. You know, that's what God did when Jesus died on the cross. Uh, that, that What was He doing? The Bible says that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world unto Himself. Uh, part of His greater process was to show to mankind both their lost condition and His love for them. You know, what does the Bible say? It's the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. Listen, I'm all for hard preaching. And I'm all for talking about the, the, the holiness of God. We have a holy God. We can't understand the love of God without rightly understanding the law of God and His holiness. I'm not against that. But understand that it's not the severity of God that brings men to the cross of Calvary. It's the salvation of God. It is the grace of God. It is the mercy of God. He gave this providentially. Uh, Joseph didn't know, but he suspected that through this, he would be able to bring them back in a state and place of humility where they would not have pride, where they would not have arrogance, where they would not feel any sense of power or authority in their dealings with him. He was trying to bring them to the right place so that they could be brought back into fellowship with Him. And that's what Jesus, in dying on the cross, did for you and I. He was bringing us to a place where we could have right fellowship with God. So I see the imparting of this money. But then notice finally with me this morning the impact of this money. It produced some things in their life. When they saw, when they opened this and and saw the money that was provided, it, it, it elicited some things in their life. Well, first thing I notice is this. The Bible says in verse 28 of our text that it, uh, he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. The Bible says their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? They didn't say, What did Joseph do? They didn't say, What did the steward that handled this transaction do? 
They didn't even say simply, what did we do? But they asked this question, what has God done unto us? They were finally getting honest about their past. They had already said in front of Joseph, they didn't say it to Joseph, but they had said in front of Joseph to each other, they had said that all this is brought upon us because of how we treated Joseph these long years ago. And if you read through further in the story, you'll find that they are finally brought to a breaking point where they confess what they've done and admit that they were wrong and admit that they sinned against Joseph and sinned against God. But through this process, God's getting them honest with themselves. Bring them to a place, we could use this word, conviction. Conviction. An awareness. A consciousness that they have trespassed and offended against God. They didn't say, what hath Joseph done unto us? They didn't say, what have the Egyptians? They said, what hath God done unto us? They're finally recognizing that it's God with whom they have to do. You know what the cross of Calvary teaches you and I? That our business is not with religion. That our business is not with those that we have slighted. That our ultimate business is with God and God alone. David understood this at the point of repentance. And he said, he lifted up his eyes in Psalm 51 towards the heavens. Now this is a man that had, that had committed adultery with a man's wife. This is a man that had killed that man. He had wrecked uh, this woman's life, wrecked her husband's life. This is a man that the, because of his sin, the blood of that infant child would have been upon him. This is a man that because of his sin, much turmoil and much heartache and much death was brought upon his family. He had offended a lot of people. But he said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. He said, Lord in heaven, I have sinned against thee. You know when a man gets right with God is when he recognizes that it's God with whom he has to get right with. I'm not saying there aren't other people that you may have wronged, that you may need to set some things right. But you know what the cross of Calvary does? It tells us that our chief conflict is with God Himself. God has taken measures for us to be Redeemed. God has made, taken measures for us to be reconciled. You know why that is? Because it is God chiefly with whom we have transgressed and offended. So it brought forth forthrightness. It caused them to admit their sin. Look down in chapter 43. Let's read a couple verses here and we'll be done. The Bible says in verse 11 of chapter 43, some, some time has passed. They've eaten up the corn that they had and, and Jacob has come to his sons and said, you need to go back and you need to buy more, uh, more corn and more supplies for us. And they say, well, we cannot go empty-handed. That man will kill us. The Bible says their father Israel said unto them, if it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruit in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh and nuts and almonds. And I, th- I think Pepperidge Farm puts all that in a box now for Christmas. I think you can get all that at one time, a little bit of summer sausage. And take double money, he says. Take double money in your hand. And the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand. Peradventure, it was an oversight. Man, that's amazing to me. So now, they're going to take the money that Joseph has paid, but they're also going to take other money that they desire. Now remember what this is. This is a picture of the life we have in Jesus Christ. You know what it brought about in their life? It brought about faithfulness in their life. Whenever they came back, they said, I want to give you back what you've given to me to the best of my ability. You know, you know when a person gets born again, what their ambition ought to be? It ought to be to say, I can never repay what you've done for me, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to. Trying to. It brought faithfulness. They said, we're going to come back, we're going to bring double money. They weren't cheap on God. Uh, they weren't, they weren't, they didn't come in and say, now let's weigh this in the balances. They came in and they said, now Joseph, this is all we've got. This is all we have. Take it. It's yours. It belongs 
to you. That ought to be our attitude in our Christian life. Lord, everything I am, everything I have is yours. I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for you. That's why they brought double money. They said, we're going to bring the money we owed, but we're going to bring the money that you gave that we wouldn't have had if you hadn't given it to us. And now I'm going to lay it all down at your feet, Joseph. It all belongs to you. It brought about faithfulness. Not only that, I noticed down in verse number 18, the Bible says that when they came and saw Joseph, that the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our asses. What he's saying is this. Uh, they're saying this man's going to either kill us or he's going to enslave us. You know what it produced in their life? It produced fear. Fear. A healthy fear. A fear, by the way, that was not answered with wrath but instead was answered with mercy. You know what Jesus did for us, what we ought to produce in us is a holy reverential fear of God. It, it, it removed from their life any semblance of pride and arrogance that they had. Any, any sense they had, they could come in and make a power plate, Brother Ken. They said, nope, that's done gone. He has every right to kill us if He wants to. Can I tell you this? God has every right to strike us down if He wants to. I'm not saying He's going to do that, but I'm saying this, we ought to fear Him as a holy God, as a righteous God, as a God that is worthy of our respect. And then I noticed finally, you know what it brought? It brought their faith. Man, this is funny. I don't know. I guess this steward is going to have to ask forgiveness or already has uh, of God when he gets to heaven because he lies to these men. Verse 19, the Bible says they came near to the steward of Joseph's house and they communed with him at the door of the house and said, O oh, sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food. And it came to pass when we came to the end that we opened our sacks and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of our sack, of his sack. Our money in full weight. And we have brought it again in our hand. And other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put the money in our sacks. And he said, listen, this, this is amazing. Peace be to you. Fear not. Your God and the God of your Father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money and He brought Simeon out unto them. You know what He said? This is a lie. I guess, I guess God will have to forgive Him of it. Amen. Maybe he'll blame it on the Holy Ghost. I don't know. But whatever it is, he says to him, I got your money. I don't know what you're talking about. I checked the books. I've got it. I've got it back here in the bank. You know, it must be God that reached down out of heaven and put that money right back where it was. You know what it produced in them? It produced forthrightness. It produced faithfulness. It produced fear. But it, it brought faith about in their life. They walked away and they had to say, I don't understand it, but it must have been God that did it. You know what the testimony is and should be of every born again believer? I don't understand. I cannot make sense of it. But sure enough, it was God that did it in my life. We could go beyond just the salvation of the believer and we could talk about everything God's done. Our, you know, and I, and, and I try to pray like this often when I ask God to intervene in people's life. Lord, do it in a way that men will look at and know it's been God that has done it. Now, I can't endorse everything this steward did. You, you ever, you ever uh, liked what somebody did and didn't want to admit it? I like what he did. I, I ain't going to admit that because he lied. But I, but I sort of like the lie that he told. You know why I like it? Because it caused them to believe and trust and know that God had intervened. Maybe God will give them a little bit of grace on that because you know, in a sense, what he said was true. It was God that had put that money back in the sack. I'm saying this, that in your life and mine, God does what He does. And, and He did what He did on Calvary. But even beyond that, He does what He does in your life and mine in such a way as to produce faith 
in our Christian journey. He could do it an easier way, but He chooses not to. You know, it would have been easier if they just walked in. Joseph said, you know, I like you boys. I, I, I'm all right with you. Just take your money. We got money. But Joseph didn't do it that way. And you know what the sum total result of it was? At the end of the day, here these ten men stand around and say, you know, God is working in our life. Earlier on, they had said, what hath God done unto us? What hath God done unto us? Now they knew what God was doing in their life. Through the goodness of God, He was leading them to repent. I wonder in you and I's life, and, and, and Christ just paid the sin debt for every single one of us. If you've, even if you've never opened the sack and seen the price that has been paid, even if you've never reached in there and received the grace of God and the salvation that's been given for you, can I, listen, rest assured that in your corn bag sits all the money to pay your debt. He's paid the price. All you have to do is open it up and look in and receive what God has done for you. But even those of us that are born again, we've had a great price paid in our life. Say, preacher, what can I do? How can I, how can I ever do this? Well, here's what we can do. We can take, we can scoop up everything we got in our life. All of our plans, all of our ambitions, all of our priorities, all of our means, all of our time, all of our talent. We can carry it right into the throne room of God and lay it down and say, this belongs to you for what you've done for me. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I wonder this morning if God has spoken to your heart about something. I bet if He has, it's not by accident. In fact, I know that to be true. He wouldn't speak to you by accident or incident. If He touched your heart about something, won't you find a place down here and deal with Him? Father, I love You. And I thank You for the truth of Your Word. Use it in our hearts in these next few moments. In Jesus' name.